I think I heard action. That's right, folks. It is action. We're taking action. We are controlling or we're taking charge of our lives because we're really being governed by government and media and censorship and all that's going on. They create this paradigm that we're following. We are not about that. We're called Enlightened Up. It's Craig Shoemaker here with Enlightened Up, offering you an opportunity to uh, you know, approach your life in a different way. We have comedians and actors and writers and spiritual leaders on our show. We now have one who has like 9,000 hyphens with his, <laughs> his job title, a comic, but uh, you know he's a, he's a number of things. John Henson is our guest. John Glad you made this big trek here. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. I didn't realize when you invited me to do this that I could I could stretch up my arm and hit your studio with a rock <laughs> from my front door. He just moved to the neighborhood. I've had so many people on here that complain. I'm in Westlake Village, California. It's our studio here. And uh, I've been telling John, come on, come over to the studio. So I finally got him here because you're my neighbor now for like a month. It's, yeah, it, and... A portion of that time we've been out of town and then we're renovating this house. We've been, had our hands full. But it's funny that you talk about the way people respond to Westlake. I knew nothing about Westlake Me before too. we moved out here. Same here. I'm amazed by the amount of people I know that have lived in L.A. for decades that act like I've moved to Utah. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. I always say we're in Wyoming. They're, they're like, where? They'll never come to see you. Where is Westlake? <laughs> Wooded? And I'm like, it's just past. But you were that way. Yeah, 100%. But I'm like, it's not. It's like 20 minutes past Malibu. And people are like, there's shit past Malibu? Is it? I thought it all ended there. Are you sure? Are you in Arizona? Like, you know, as my wife said, anybody that comes to see us is bringing an overnight bag. Because they just don't know. You know? They don't know. The other thing about it is it's so beautiful. I yelled at my friend who had been out here for 20 years. I yelled him for not telling me how wonderful it is like he kept it a secret it doesn't feel like la it really it's yeah it we're is, close enough yeah you're you're within striking distance mm -hmm. you know you can get the you don't have to have that home in montana right right, right. i yeah. mean it does it feels and i when i say not in la i mean in a good way like it feels like you are free from my my wife and i drove back to uh hollywood to go to the interactive van gogh exhibit which is phenomenal if you okay. haven't seen it. It's like a multimedia For kids prison. too? Yeah. We brought our children. Right. It's 360-degree uh, video presentation of his work and music, and it's animated, and it's – I won't even try to describe it because I won't do it justice, but it's – Anything I about it, the lopping off his ear? Is that part of the – it, It's not – it is addressed <laughs> in some of the writing, oh, but it is? not visually. Okay. Um, but it's, it's an extraordinary thing. But driving back into – I used to live right near the Tower records building when i met mm -hmm. my wife i had a house in the hills right above that and we were driving back through there and i was like how did i do this like, how did i love this i i was like are we in on mad max fury road right now like <laughs> what well, it's real bad now it's, i could not get over how different it how about is about the homeless situation i was like i i could not get out of there fast enough i, I there's so many tents i thought it was an rei exhibit it's uh, yeah under the bridge in yeah Hollywood. it's unbelievable yeah. how many homeless are there yeah, and, and they really are building structures i was about themselves. to say like with really nice tents um, no, like really like i'm like are you guys sponsored by patagonia like how they have on, wings yeah <laughs> you like know. you know they've got you know washing stations absolutely and, yeah um it's, it's it's amazing to me. Does anything in you? Uh, I'm just getting to know you. Basically, I don't know you that well. I mean, 
do you have a, like a rescue gene in you? That's what happens to me. I really want to come up with the solution for them. I want to take them all in. It's it's interesting. I mean, I am, um, as I think from what I know of you, you are, I'm a deeply compassionate person, yeah. right? And there's a, uh, a strong kind of current of humanism of, of wanting to appeal to our better angels and, and not wanting yeah. to just sort of be like, sucks for you. You know, that's not who yeah. I am. We, you and I both. It's kind of like what the show's about. Yeah. Charity like, work. Let's, and let's do a different approach to yeah, life. Yeah. Helping those less fortunate. Give back. Yeah. Um, right up until the point where I, my children are growing up in a community. Our first day back at school for in-person learning this spring, uh, I was taking my kids to school. We're half a mile from my house, and there's a, a homeless woman walking across the street wearing a leather baseball jacket naked from the waist down. And and I I, I did that thing that only blackjack dealers do. I went, we're out of here. Like I showed my hands to the eye in the sky, clapped. Best of luck, everybody. I'm going on break. I was like, we're done. I'm out, you know? Yeah. And I, you know, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I guess the, the thing would be, um, if there were, uh, an apparent solution, um, uh, you know, I always try to find the solution. Like I think to myself, why not build, like there's so much money out there. You know, and they just, and they keep it for themselves, you know, like a Bezos or whatever, you know, he built like mansions for himself and stuff like that. Why not just build a community of like, you know, just a few things that they could have, you know, like a, a like an igloo. I don't, you know, I don't know if it's, I, I guess the, there's so there's two schools of thought. I'm just freelancing here and I don't, I don't know that this is going to be accurate, but I, but you know, one is you have these people who. Um, for whatever reason, whether it's, uh, you know, they've, uh, drug addiction, uh, drug addiction, yeah. alcoholism, uh, thrown out of their homes, mental illness, yeah, yeah, mental, or, yeah. or just terrible strokes of luck. Right. Yeah. So for some set of circumstances, nature and nurture, some combination of the both, um, they find themselves in this position. There's picking them up and parachuting them into, uh, a, a better quality of life which is appealing because it's sort of holistic and it feels like a faster process. If you could, if you could, if you could do whatever that, yes. that is. Right. Um, the other thing, which it strikes me as probably the more impactful, but more chronic way of addressing it is, you know, there's gotta be more um, emphasis on, substance abuse and uh and alcoholism and get to the uh, root and everything should health. be everything should be handled at the mental root. health i find that mental health is something that we all say but literally no one does no one addresses things they're afraid to like i have a situation um uh, with someone with really bad mental health and it's affecting a lot of people it hurts a lot of people mm -hmm. people are suffering from that person's mental health right no one will address her no one I mean, I can't, it's like I'm desperately trying to say, look, look at the damage, look at this. And no one will even say something to her. You know, I think a lot of that is fear-based. Yes, right? it is. Because, because you're basically, you're saying, I don't want to go walking through the minefield. I don't yeah. want to, you know, I don't want to go step on a claymore. You know, it's interesting when we're talking about this, uh, the, um, Another sort of uh, side of the coin of homelessness uh, is uh, 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 
our very broken educational system. Oh yeah. And um, uh, my my father and uh, stepmother have um, that's their cause, right? Is is education for children that are are children of poverty and children that are less fortunate. And they have my parents have done a ton of work you know, sitting down with people at Harvard and, and, um, and very progressive. What they're teaching though is important though. We don't need to know Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. That's the kind of crap you and I grew up with. That serves no purpose. Right. So that's, there's, there's that cultural sort of aspect of, of updating the actual information, Mm -hmm. but the, what they have found through their, um, research is children of poverty are on average, a year and a half behind their peer group by first grade. Mm-hmm. So that chasm grows with every grade, right? Because if you can't read, you can't learn. And so, not to mention they're malnourished. Right. You can't right. learn as much. Food insecure. Your, your brain yeah. is affected if yeah. you're not eating right. So, so relating it to the homeless thing is, you know, with these kids who, it's, it sounds awful to say, but... By fourth or fifth grade, they've fallen so far behind their peer group yeah. that you almost can't close the gap. Yeah, and, who, and right? who's there to help them? So the answer, in my parents' estimation, was, and this is before it came up in Biden's proposal, is like um, universal preschool, right? So they they put together, they backed on their own mm-hmm. a preschool program. Uh, bought all the equipment, funded the teachers, et cetera, in their community in Florida, uh, w- and offered to do this with a specific school on the grounds that if they got the data points that said it was effective, the school would take it over. The school board would not would not only take it over and fund it themselves, they'd fund it through all Title I schools throughout the district, mm-hmm. 11 schools. Um, and the result was overwhelming because they're getting kids early. You yeah. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you, you know, you're getting kids at two and a half. And the idea being, if you can, you know, it's sort of the, you give a man a fish, he eats for a day. That's what I was talking fish, about. Yeah. So yeah. if you can, if you can educate these kids. But educate them through teaching fishing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And no, literally. You, gotta, yeah. you know, it's not enough to catch it. you got to learn how to scale it. Um, <laughs> right. But, um, but the, the idea being you, you have the opportunity to break a multi-generational cycle yeah. of property. Exactly. And, that, that, and that's, the, that's the issue. But people, people just want to ignore things and make things go away. And that's what I have a problem with. Have you ever done, you know, I did um, one of the proudest moments of my life, quite frankly, was an intervention. Did an intervention on a drunk. And uh, I was brought in by the family. You know, I, I know her. And I walked in there, and everyone we went in with all backed up. They all went, whoa, I'm not, I'm not doing this. And I found myself, I asked, you know, my higher source for courage. And now I understand. You mentioned the word fear. People are afraid. Yeah. What are you afraid of? Do you think the person's going to murder you? That's what's so weird is they, that, they what are they ex- going to do to they you? They extract an emotional price. Exactly. But, but is that... Is it worth it not to go through that your own suffering of emotions or whatever it is or your own pains of being attacked? Well, and you know what? I got on the bed with her and I looked her in the eye and I said, you know, I'm here for you. And she was ready to attack me and she was. 
She actually said, wow, you gained a lot of weight. And by the way, that's still with me. <laughs> I walked away with that yeah, too. Yeah. <laughs> Next thing you know, you're drinking. Right? You know, like. <laughs> Meanwhile, she's sitting there with beer cans everywhere, cigarette, a gigantic wound that she was padding. It had so much blood on it. She's patting it with a gauze pad. And she's asking, she's telling me that I looked. Yeah, you let yourself you, go. <laughs> so, but I have to tell you that, and it's, again, this show is about encouraging people to kind of shift. That was a big moment for me. I really felt great being of service to someone. And she ended up in recovery. And, you know, I mean, but it's just, there's no one, there are very right. few people out there doing that. But, you know, you, you touched on something about, you know, people are afraid which really speaks to the idea that alcoholism and disease, uh, a drug addiction, is a family disease. And when I say family, I mean your circle, right? It doesn't necessarily just mean your nuclear family. It means, mm-hmm. the, you know, it... it People are affected it by it. It worms its tentacles oh, yeah. Yeah. because it's part of the dynamic of how the alcoholic and the drug addict relates to everybody. And so it becomes part of the choreography of that relationship. And when that person is triggered and they start acting out and they want to punish everybody, um, you know, I guess really what it comes down to, and, and I know you and I have experienced this in our own ways, is sometimes things need to get worse before they get better. Oh, you know what I mean? Like sometimes you just got to accept the fact that like, instead of uh, chronic suffering, it's better to, you know, face the music, even if things get more compressed and more intense for a period of time to end that endless cycle. there's, There's that point where you go, what do I let go of? What do I surrender? And what can I do? That's where the questions come in for me is like, well, what you know? It's not about controlling, but what can I do about this as opposed to letting go of it? Because a lot of people have that approach of letting go because of, you know, no pain. But the, but I always say the avoidance of pain is worse than any pain. I you know it's interesting because I think you know I, I've always felt like the general misconception to the extent that that uh, there's a, a a broader misconception of of um, of diseases like alcoholism and addiction, it's that um, that those people are weak, right? And and I feel strongly that um, that is absolutely not the case. I think alcoholics no. and addicts are stronger and harder than a coffin nail because they keep going when any normal person would tap out and go, this is nuts. This is, and, 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 but what it is, is it's a misuse of that strength and that endurance for pain in a way that is self-defeating and and self-destructive. And the challenge is to rebuild and repurpose that strength and tolerance for discomfort and suffering in a more healthy way. So where you can endure life on life's terms until that doesn't feel like nails on a black and let people in on that story. And then they they can relate to it and then they can, they can, they can actually grow themselves through you. You can, you can inspire them to go in that direction. I have a a question completely off topic. What is that on your wrist? This, what do you mean? Look, yeah. Oh, it's on both wrists. Yeah, it's my kids' names. Oh, okay. I didn't see the other side. I only yeah. saw. Oh, you see you. My kids' names. And they won't be able to read it because it's in cursive. Kids, <laughs> kids don't even know what yeah. cursive yeah. is. Should have got it in Helvetica. <laughs> I had uh, my eleven-year-old. We signed for a parasailing thing. He had to sign the contract. 
He doesn't know what his signature Block is. letters, right? Like, a, like what's their like signature now? Like a death row inmate signing for his last meal just writes an X, you know? Yeah, it's like a Manson carving, a, you know, yeah. carving the devil's work. I, I mean, I, I seriously, I'm going, you don't have a signature, so I actually filmed his first signature. Oh, that's so funny. You know, yeah, that's I said, here, here it is. And he didn't know what to do. He was so puzzled. I said, it's called cursive. Yeah. They're not taught that anymore. No, I mean, it's, um, you know, handwriting is like, uh, isn't that adorable? When, you know, when you were growing up, handwriting was and I gotta like be honest with you. Thing. I, my handwriting looks like a cave drawing. Like yeah. my handwriting yeah. is, I write in block letters. I don't write in cursive. So you were not brought up Catholic. No, no, no. no. You you always hear the stories about the Catholics. We were raised the best. We were raised pagan. We, <laughs> no, we didn't. I mean, I, and I was a terrible student. So, I mean, I can sign my name, but if you asked me to write a sentence in cursive, I'd be like, mm, I need a lot of paper and come back in an hour. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, didn't you have signature classes though? My my classes were filled with them. You had to go on to the end of the lines. Which, by the way, we are people that are out of the lines. Yeah, that's how we creative people are. Yeah, we are. You don't give us lines, right? That must mean all Catholic kids are not creative. <laughs> it's, I, you know, I, the ones I grew up with, like had rulers hit. They were hit with rulers if they didn't do it right. Yeah, it was drilled into them. You had to be within the lines. I, uh, I, yeah. I mean, my kids, um, they also do that thing where kids, like you know, there's you got the lined paper, and my son will write like at a like it's like. It's you, it's like microfiche. It's so small. I'm like, dude, you got that whole line, man. Rock out, man. Make it the world's yours. Go right up to the top of the line because it's. I look at it. And I'm like, you know, I, I got to get a range finder to be able to see it. You know, how much do your kids like you, and which ones are like you? Um, are they reflections of you? In a lot of ways, yeah. I think my son certainly feels like a mini me um, in terms of his uh, kind of emotional construct. My daughter, I grew up in a family. I'm the youngest of five boys. So mm. this is the first, like... That's some fighting for territory, you know, right? Other for than, food. like... Yeah, right. <laughs> no wonder so, you dress... Like, you, you write like a caveman. You ate like a caveman. It was, you know, being the youngest of five was like, you know, it was like... You're chewing on extra skin. It was like growing up in Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, it was a wow. lot of stress positions and questioning under <laughs> duress. Um, breaking of the Geneva Convention. But uh, but they, you know, uh, I, I wasn't around girls growing up. And, and my daughter is so fundamentally different in the way she relates. Like, my son gets what he wants through, like, blunt force trauma. Like, he right, just right. repeats it's, his request more urgency, yeah. with more urgency and at a louder volume until he either gets in trouble or gets his way. Mm -hmm. My daughter, like wheedles and becomes adorable and it's it, <laughs> they completely work you when my daughter was like just you, over two uh and and uh she was maybe two two and a half she was playing she was like fussing around with a dog's water bowl and i i remember saying i go uh oh baby please don't do that because you'll spill all the water and then daddy i'll have to clean it up and i was making dinner and i turned around <laughs> You know, she's holding the water bowl and there's water all over the floor. And I didn't, you know, I didn't chastise her, but I go, Josie, I told you not to do that. That, you know, look, now there's water all over the floor. And she just sort of, she looked at me and shrugged and kind of twirled on one oh. heel. And she goes, but I'm just a girl. <laughs> 
And I, I literally, oh. I put my my palms up in supplication and like backed away in fear. Like I was like, how did you know to do that? At like, that age? Yeah. Like how do they get that? They get the just, cadence down, the it was voice. Like, if I'm really cute, you wow. won't get angry. Where do they get it from? Because my wife is not that way. So it's not like she's imitating, but it's like a flirtation that takes place. They yes. know how to work you. Yes. She walked in one day. She goes, daddy, I got you licorice. Your favorite licorice like that. And I'm going, Thank you, Chloe. <laughs> you know, she ran ahead of mom who was undoing, uh, getting the groceries. And I get, can I have one? And my wife walks in. I told you you can't have sugar. Get away from me, you harlot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm with my father right now. He's feeding me sugar. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Knows how to work me. Yeah. I'm just about to give it to her. Yeah. And it's amazing to me. I can't believe you picked that up as well. They are completely different from. Yeah. From go. From, I asked from my son out to eat of the a womb. vegetable. No, it's gross. I don't want it. I'm not eating it. I'm not. You can't make me. My daughter will go, but daddy. <laughs> and, and you know, and my neck, you know, I'm like, I'm like forcing my son to eat his broccoli. And with my daughter, I'm like, you, you're all right. Yeah, don't you're, get some ice cream. You're good. Like why, oh, my God. It's amazing to me because now I think it's because, you know, we are with women. That's the way we are. Right. You wouldn't think you'd do it like you'd raise the daughter like that, that, that she can work you at that age, and you don't know where they're learning it from. This right. doesn't really – It's it, she's in the back seat and a ball whizzes by. I'm like, you know, hey, you can't be playing in the car. She goes, can I play with my imaginary friend? That's how she thinks. I go, yeah, sure. Ball whizzes by me. <laughs> what are you doing? She goes, my imaginary friend is in your lap. <laughs> how did yeah. – how yeah. do you think my idiot son's – I three sons that came before her. You think they they would just go you know, through the ball, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, just, it's so and basic. Some of it is because I, I mean, I assume there's an element of like male parent, female child, male parent, male child. Like you, you know the the sort of you can't bullshit a bullshitter. Like you know the <laughs> tactics of little boys, oh, right? Right. Because we were we're, little boys. Yeah, yeah that's you it. know. Oh yeah, well, I'm on to you. I always say that. But to my them. daughter, I I like I honestly I could stare at my daughter for a living yeah. like i just yeah. look at her like <sighs> i know like i'm just i she i'm wrapped around her finger man. yeah it's it's true and i wonder what the psychology is there's probably books about it but it really is a completely different relationship not that i my three sons the three you know that are older i mean great relationships with you know some not so much anymore you know but this one has got me oh. to the point where you're right she can get away with anything and they know if they're starting not to, they'll throw some other move. They got all the moves. And they just got the move to stop you in your tracks from disciplining, yeah. from being hard guy. Oh, hard guy ain't going to work. I told you. No, that's done. I wonder if it's also some of it is that she's a second child because, you know, I've always felt like second children. This is my theory. I don't know if it's right. I don't know much. Um, but... <laughs> My theory is second children are more compliant because when you have one kid, you're always asking that kid questions. You're giving them 
choices. Do you want a PB&J or do you want mac and cheese? Do you want to go to the park? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? With second kids, you're like, get in the fucking car. We're going to the park. And they just, so they never get a say in anything. You know what I mean? They're just like, they're a plus one in all of your plans. Like they're like, yep, this is where we go. I'm just happy to be included, you know? So I don't, I feel like she doesn't, maybe it would be different if she were the oldest child. I don't know, but I, I, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. She's uh, um, my, I feel like there's a birth kids. order thing. I mean, I know that's been written about, but I'm not so sure when it's, I think gender wise, it's just that male female relationship. There's, it's just extended beyond anything normal. There's, yeah. there's, it's just, it's who we are. It's our relationship with our mothers. Yeah. What kind of relationship do you have with your mom? My mom's passed now. I mean, we had a very close relationship, but she was also very, you know, my mom was a, very dysfunctional person, you know, very sick person. Uh, how did it manifest itself? Uh, drug addiction and alcoholism. But how did that manifest itself? You know, she was... Like not showing there's up? A, or, well, there's know. a chicken and the egg aspect of it. Of she, You know, she did have legitimate chronic pain. She also, you know, suffered from depression for mm -hmm. many, many years. Did the disease cause the depression? Did the depression lead to but the what, disease? But what did it lead to? What was her behavior like? A sort of a functional. I mean, there was a period of time where I lived alone with my mom after. So I'm the youngest by seven years. So by the time my parents got divorced, I was 11. All my brothers were 18, 19. They were all out of the house. So mm -hmm. it was just me and my mom. Mm. And um, my mom, who was not real functional leading up to the divorce. Well, just cratered. So, right. you know, um, I mean, this is sort of heavy, but like, you know, there was a good five or six years of, of, you know, at 11, I was on my own, like yeah. on my own. Absolutely. I was, I was the almost a latchkey I was, kid. Yeah. I mean, you know, no hot meals, no clean clothes, nobody getting you up for school. And nobody. you're learning how to make your own hot meals and, and clean your clothes. Yeah. And you're, and you're, or just living off of PB and J and, you right. know, and like, and you know, um, no super, like I had to raise myself yeah, I got you know? it. and, yeah. and I had to parent her like yep. emotionally. Yeah. I was the, the adult. Right. I got you. Um, so, you know, Emotional breakdown, a lot of tears, a lot of mm. sorrow, a lot of, um, you know, having to console an adult at 11. And you, know, roll, you had to become growing up real fast. Yeah. And that affects you today. Well, it certainly affected me then. I mean, it spun me out big time. And I, um, you know, I became towards the end of that, like when I hit my teenage years, 15 through like, you know, 17, 18, I was, um, you know, I got in trouble. I was an angry kid, you know. Um, I, uh, I was, you know, I got thrown out of high school. He, um, that stuff, you store that away. That's trauma, man. That's trauma. And there's nobody there, as I said, doing an intervention with you that's coaching you along the way saying, hey, I see this in you. I see how difficult this is. Let me help you. You're on your own finding your own help completely unqualified. You're not an adult. Yeah. I had the same thing, the, by the way. There's the whole know. sort of shame surrounding it. Like you just know. So you, I don't know that I would have spoken about it if I had the chance. I certainly wouldn't have known or felt comfortable articulating the depths of it. And sure. so, um, so you just sort of, 
you, you you end up with this like why why is life so easy for everybody else and so hard for me and then you get to that point where you you know um i mean i you know i, I you would never if you were when people look at me they would not think that I was who I was as an adolescent because, you know, I, I, I went down a pretty dark path. Sure. I'm, believe me, you and I relate on this on many levels. I understand absolutely. And we, like I said, we had to grow fast. And then the, what comes with that is resilience never can keep me down. You know right. what I mean? I'm just going to keep getting up. This, I encourage yeah. people all the time, keep getting up. Cool hand Luke, man. Yeah. Just literally, just, right. you know. You might up. want to come up with a more modern reference than Cool Hand Luke. <laughs> catering it to our generation. Just catering right to um, me. but No, but I mean, it really is like I just, I you know, as uh, my brother said to me once, uh, you know, uh, one of your greatest attributes is you can take a punch. Yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, I, I'm told this all the time. My wife even compliments me on it, on the resilience. Now, and we learn from it. What do you think was the moment in your life where you just said, wow, do you have do you have aha moments, as Oprah calls them? Do you have those moments like of epiphanies, life changers, transformational times in your life? I can think of times that in retrospect, it was a pivot point. I don't know that I knew of it in that moment. Rarely do, by the way. You know what I mean? Rarely, yes. Uh, I didn't have that self-awareness, but looking back, clearly there are some chapters, some moments, singular moments in my life where I'm, I, where I, where the tumblers clicked mm-hmm. in my head and everything changed, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, I, I, when I, I had dropped out of college to, um, so I, I dropped out of Boston University my sophomore year to mm-hmm. do. First of all, it took me five years to get through high school. I had to repeat my junior year. Mm-hmm. Um, I left. Uh, I was I was encouraged to take my education elsewhere after three years <laughs> at a public school. And if you that's code for you, kicked out. You got to really you got to really shit the bed to get thrown out of a public school. You know, <laughs> that's the truth. So um, they do anything to keep you there. Yeah. I went to a uh, a private school. Uh, they they so they kick you out of there. You end up in a private school because your parents, that's where they it took was, you. It was a reclamation thing. It right. was like, you know, a few of my brothers had went there. We had some connections there. It's a, it's a very elite private school now. Back then, they still, it was small enough that it was for kids that had either been in private school their entire lives or kids like me that needed more structure. Right. You know what I mean? Right, right. So, um, but it wasn't uh, like juvenile hall. No, no, no. But that was our was, threat when I was growing up. They called we're sending you to monkey hall. It was. <laughs> you don't want to go to monkey hall. <laughs> it was like, it was the last house on the block in terms of education. Like oh, if okay. I was not, not, I don't mean that about the school. For me, it was like, right. You screw it's, this, it's this up or you're, and it's, yeah. you're, and you're going to be one of the Out dudes the who never leaves your hometown. Right. Um, and, uh, and so, um, I, I excelled in that environment for two years and then I got into college and uh, freshman year I started doing improv, second year, sophomore year I started doing stand-up and I immediately fell in love with it. What town is this? This is, well, I dropped out of Boston University while my father, who I mentioned to you, it was like his whole 
thrust in life is education. He was on the Board of Regents for Public Education in Massachusetts when I dropped out of BU to do stand-up. Sure, he's proud. Um, so uh, <laughs> it was... Did you have people saying you need something to fall back on? It was... Did you hear that line? <laughs> you know, this, yeah. Don't like, you go down that comedy road. You're a Boston guy. Well, I grew up legendary, in Connecticut, but, but I started but, out in Boston. But the legendary Boston comics. Yeah. Although my time in Boston for stand-up was brief. Like, oh, was I spent it? about a year there. And then Fran Solomita directed a movie. Yeah, Fran. Yeah, called When Stand-Up Stood Out. Yeah. And it was about the Boston comedy scene. It was like a murderer's row. Murderer's of, row. Of guys. Like the guys that, you know, I was Lenny sort of... Lenny Clark. And yeah, but now, like, I was sort of just behind the uh, the Dana Gould, Janine Garofalo mm. kind of uh, uh, crowd. I was, you know, the guys that, you know... Greg Fitzsimmons and and Joe Rogan and um, I didn't know Rogan was from there. Boston, he's from the Boston comedy scene. He was a Boston college guy. Wow. You know, oh, that's the reason because so, a lot of people go to those schools. With there's Joe. so many colleges. So right, um, yeah. Louis C.K. Mm. You know, um, it was it was intense. So Leno's from there too. Um, it was dropping out of school to do stand up. You know, it was like telling my dad that I was joining the carnival and was going to guess weights for a living. <laughs> like, it was just not a popular decision. Um, and I I had, he confronted me once in front of my family at a Christmas dinner uh, in a really, really hardcore, like, a, you know, using another dated reference, like in a great Santini-like way. Oh, you know no. I mean? Bouncing a ball off your head? Not emotionally. Yeah, emotionally, it was, yeah. It was, right. um, it was... Metaphorically, bouncing that ball off your head. Yeah. You're in a bad basketball yeah. game. He and stops. Now, now, look, I, I want to be very clear. Like, I am extremely close with my dad. And yeah. my dad, you know, if I were to... I'll tell you the details of the story, and it's going to sound awful. But understand that... Where my dad comes from, this was not like his child. His dad was a coal miner. You know, he grew up very poor. Sure, right. So it sounds brutal now because our lives have changed for the better over generations. Um, just as a, it's not an attractive and, and, story, but it's and, not reflective of who yeah, he is. And they, well, yeah, because they're, they're, it was passed on to him, and it was and passed it was, on through generations. And it generations. was fear-based. I mean, it was, yeah, he was, it was out of love for me and fear. But he, at Christmas dinner, in front of my girlfriend, my brothers, their wives. With a girlfriend. Uh, and he goes, uh, he goes, look around my house. And I go, what do you mean? <laughs> and he goes, look around my house. You see my house? You see the cars in the garage? You'll yeah. never own anything like it as long as you live. Oh, jeez. You'll never know what it's like to own your own home. You'll never buy a brand new car. I've seen the entire fucking world. You're never going to leave this country. Your kids will grow up in an apartment. <laughs> they will not go he to college. He say this in front of the girlfriend and the family. They will not go to college. Um, I just want you to know... What kind of a life you're wow, choosing for he's yourself? Like Nostra fucked upness. And, and I go, I go, I go, Dad. I'm not, I'm not like you. You know, I'm not a businessman. I'm, you know, I'm a comic. And he goes, No, you're a fucking waiter that wants to be a comic. Oh, and man. even I know there's nothing lower than that. 
He's oh. like, what makes you think you're so special? Because you got the lead in your high school plays. There's a kid like you in every single high school in this country, and they all want to be stars. What makes you think you're so special? Like, and it was just, it was, he was trying to break me, you know? He was trying to break me. He was trying to shake the dream out of me. And this was his um, motivational speech. This was, uh, this was is Tony a, Robbins meets a, the Marquis was, de Sade. It was, I don't think, you know, I don't even know if he would remember this, but it's like, it was fear. Like he genuinely, as a kid that grew up, I didn't grow up poor. My dad grew up poor. Mm -hmm. So what he's, I'm sure, not to make excuses for him, he's but afraid, he's like, yeah. I know what it's like to be right. poor. Yes. You have no idea. And I, just as an outsider, can see how independable this industry is. And I know that the odds are it's going to be a very hard road for you, and I'm frightened for you. But he didn't, he didn't have the tools to be able to express it like that. So he tried to, it was like a scared straight moment for him, you know? Sure. Um, the effect that it had in was. that moment was just sitting there. I just had this like... Paralyzed? It, no, it was like a hardening inside me. Like I just went, now it's a fucking steel cage death match. And now, so it did in a negative way. It motivated you in a positive way. Absolutely. You, like I was like, you, you have, oh, I'll now, show him. Now it's, I will yeah. fucking die before I let you be right. Right. You so know? when you're on Talk Soup, is that your first big break, mm -hmm. right? Talk Soup, of which I'm sitting there going, why don't I have that fucking job? Anyway, <laughs> why don't I still have that job? But I, honestly, so like when you're I on went the home, when you're you get the contract, your first day on Talk Soup. That was years later. I went home or, or, from that dinner and I went to the clubs every single night for months on it. I rededicated myself at a level beyond anything I had ever even scratched before. Right. I became so much more possessed, tenacious. Yeah. And driven, and that led to talk soup. Interesting. Okay, but you're on talk soup. You get it first day, ready. You're on, right? Are you thinking? Are you watching me, Dad? I don't think my dad's ever watched anything I've done. I mean, I know he's seen so, moments so you of it, you're, but he's you're not never calling me. Going, hey, I'm on TV. You got to watch my new show. He might have tuned in for an episode or a part of an episode of something of some of the stuff that I've done. <laughs> I don't think it's not his thing, you know? Yeah, but I don't mean that. I'm talking about you and your feelings. Like, you better be watching me. And like it, it sounds like you were motivated to get to that position yeah, but I, I, by that you speech. Know, it's With my dad, it is, and again, this is born out of growing up, son of a coal miner, right. you know, is it's not about the prestige of being on a cult classic, poorly paying cable TV show. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not about, you know, recognition from your peer group at the fucking comedy store. It's about dollars and cents. It is a math equation. Right. And it is a math equation that is netted out with surgical precision. Mm -hmm. Like he's, you know, it's, you know, so for but, him. But you don't want that, do you? No, but I mean, I'm you just saying like that. that's his metric. Right. You know what I mean? That's because, his. Because it's, it's, he's a guy who's probably been largely motivated by financial fear his whole life. So and you're motivated by the fear of him. Fear of letting him down. Yeah. Fear, of, fear of being proven yeah. wrong. Fear right. of being a failure. Yeah. yeah. But the, so, so it really wasn't until, 
you know, I had moments of making a lick of good dough here and there, but it wasn't until like I had the run on Wipeout where I had a seven year run on a network show and other than when I was up for. And uh, and so <laughs> I still remember the audition. And so uh I you know, it wasn't until then that I feel like he started but it's it's so ingrained in him the same way, you know, he carries the trauma of his childhood, and I use trauma as an expression for the effects of the way he grew up, the same way we were talking about the way we grew up or my period of time with my mom is part of me. You know, he, you know, he just said to me not a year ago, you know, maybe it's time to move to Florida and, like, get a real estate license. You know. Did not swear to God, he did. Yeah, not. when I came home, maybe after, it's time. When I came home after my honeymoon, uh, second season of Wipeout, my wife and I came You're back. I had really done, good bank had, on a network show. I had just done like two late night shows in like a month, uh, and I came home. Wipeout was a, blowing up at the time, and I came home and my dad at a barbecue. I'm not making this up. Said, "You ought to take advantage of this opportunity." <laughs> And do something smart, like get out of this business and open up a Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> and I that specifically Dunkin' Donuts. And that week, we had done the research. That week, Wipeout was the number one rated show on television Jeez. of all broadcast and cable television. And I, I literally like, I looked at him. You know, like the RCA Vicar Dog. Like I was like my head cocked at a forty-five degree angle, and I was like, Dad. I have the number one show on TV right now. Like you, I, I cannot, there's nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. Like I'm right now, at least in this week, I'm sitting on the mountaintop. Why would I leave that to go do something that I have no, and he's like, yeah, but how long is this going to last? Yeah. You know? Well, and the answer was five more seasons. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It, I understand it, and it's their fears as well, and they, they, they mean well. But we have to mean well now and pass on better memes into our children. Uh, you, know? you know what? Permit me this. I, will t- I was one of the proudest moments of my life, one of the most meaningful, positive pivot moments of my life. And in defense of my father, to, to show the full 360-degree radius of who he is, because I just told some very tough stories about him, because he's an incredibly loving, supportive, generous man. Um, and those stories are not fair to him in terms of only exposing They're not him. that bad, by the way. But, <laughs> but every year, uh, for at least, you know, until recently with COVID and stuff, um, the five boys, my brothers and I, would take my dad away for a three-day weekend. Stag weekend. Called ourselves a stag six because there's six of us. And uh, our motto was no women, no kids, no excuses. Mm -hmm. My brother would come from Australia. And one year, every year we'd go to a different city. And and there was one year where we did Los Angeles. And um, I took my brothers and my father to see me do stand-up at the Laugh Factory. My dad had not seen me do stand up in 27 years. That's, that's a lot of nerves. <clears throat> had to have nerves that night. We went out to dinner beforehand. We drove over to Laugh Factory, and God bless Jamie for taking care of me. He had the owner's booth, that little curved booth by the sure. bathrooms that 
put aside for my family. And it was fucking packed, standing room only. And I had one of those sets. Really? I had one of the sets of my life. And, um, and, and you're extra juiced. Dude, I was on fire. Steroids. It was like uh, yeah. <clears throat> it was like one of those things where you're like pitching a perfect game. Yeah. You know right. what I mean? <clears throat> and it's like Costner, clear the mechanism. I did I did a, a yeah, yeah, I I, I was doing the catcher. a whole <laughs> bit about my dad, about turning into really? my dad. Oh wow. You know? And um and I was able to like I was playing to two audiences. So I'm playing to the house. And then I'm looking over and making eye contact with my dad, you know, and smiling. And then going back to the crowd. <clears throat> Did the crowd know he was in the audience? No. Oh, you never said no. over here? No. Magical moment. You need to do that cotton club moment. Yeah. Over right. here, ladies and gentlemen, WC Fields. No. No. You, and, so and, you're just, just glancing at him, catching the eye, moving on. Yeah, just like. Right. Almost like a watch this. Watch what I'm about to do. <laughs> You know, <clears throat> and I, I mean, I'm not one of these guys that just throws these phrases around, but like I ragged all this audience mm. and I get off and we leave and, um, we're all standing out front and, uh, I get choked up thinking about it. My dad goes, uh, he's sort of laughing about something, you know, some part of the bit that my brothers and we were talking about and, and he goes, uh, he goes, you are really funny, John. You've, uh, you got a gift. And, and in that moment, I got everything I wanted at that Christmas dinner. You know what I mean? And it was worth it. Like it filled whatever part of me had a hole in it from that. That was pretty amazing. Well, we talked earlier about an epiphany. There's one. <laughs> yeah. That's some that's the moment. I mean, that's a very big key moment. That's that's a shapeshifter. That's you just went to a whole other stratosphere. There's a letting go, a surrender. And There's, it changed the dynamics of my my relationship with him because a couple of years later when Wipeout ended, I remember talking to him on the phone and I was like, I don't I don't, I don't feel like you know, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. Maybe I should sell my house. Maybe, you know, just, you know, shed some inventory, you know. Mm -hmm. And he he goes, uh, you know, I, I think you're being too hard on yourself. Mm. You know, you've been doing this for 25 years now. You always land on your feet. You're going to be fine. Just have a little confidence in yourself. Everything's going to work out. You'll be, you'll be great. You're very talented. And I was quiet for a second, and I go, who are you and what have you done with my father? <laughs> and he laughed his ass off because I had to call him out on the fact that mm -hmm. it's like, this is not that dinner. No. Yeah. No. It's the opposite. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's great though. That you had got to experience that he used the word gift. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a strong word. When people say that, that means you are a cut above. You're not some hacky comic telling jokes and He's, you have a gift that you're sharing. And that is a very big deal. My, my, I mean, my dad, Literally, the best thing he ever said to me was, you're useless as tits on a bull. I need you like custard needed more Indians. And he would repeat it where it became a mantra, mm. like, a, like a TM <laughs> mantra. Useless as tits on a bull. Right. <laughs> right. I need you like custard needed more Indians. But 
just like you, it motivated me. And now I visit him. I visited him a few weeks ago. Really? Yeah, and this strong man that had so much impact in my life, John, it, it turns into, like, I feel for him. Because what did it all do? All is he had a harem, you know, his own cult and a harem of women and, Jeez. you know, and the mountains. He's Mr. King of the Poconos, he called himself and all that. And now he's just like whittled away with no power and literally no power, feeble. And this is a guy that ran my life. Yeah. And, but, you know. They're just people, man. Exactly. He had no idea how to be a dad. And I forgive him completely. Yeah. Now I can just just be with him. But there's no more of that feeling, oh, my God. You know, I would, he said I didn't have man hands. He told my mom I was like seven years old. So then before he would come over, because, you know, he left when I was born, he would visit. I would sand my hands with an emery board till they were bloody so that he would have rough hands to to shake. And it's the same guy that I'm sitting there a few weeks ago just going, oh, wow. This is what life has come down to. Yeah. So all that power, all that control, all the dominance that they're about, it's their own fears and all that stuff. It got it got simplified to the point where I just it got into a, just a complete state of forgiveness, a complete state of acceptance of this is just all he had. Well, you know, it, and it, it's okay that that's all he has. That relates Take the expectations to, out. You know, one of the most profound things I ever heard was somebody said. A guy said, I have to remember that anyone that ever hurt me, a parent, a lover, a friend, they were doing the best they could with the tools at their disposal. It wasn't personal. They didn't do it to me. They just did it because they didn't know any better. If anyone gets anything out of this podcast, it's that. That's a because huge, that it's, freed it's, it's me. A, it's a bit, you're exactly right. <laughs> and that way we don't live in a victim mentality. Yeah. By the way, I have, I have so many times where I'm judgmental. You know, I actually judge people for judging people. <laughs> like that's up. Yeah. But we're all guilty of the, of the judgment. But I mean, it's so important that people understand that. And that's it. That, that level of acceptance and keeping out of expectations. It's very important. But do you have this that goes on? This is one of my judgy things. I, I'm just admitting it. I hate victims. I go out. I, I, I have a, I, something inside of me. Like, like the self-pity kind of victims? Yeah, and I think that a lot of people's health is victim-y, you know, when they, uh, you know, sorry, folks. I won't even be specific. I had it happen yesterday. I made my son laugh. Somebody came along in one of those scooters, uh, you know, and, and they're, like, entitled. You know what I mean? I'm one of those in Costco. We're shopping, and they come, you know, like, get out of my way. Like, they own right. the road, and I, right. oh, I started going off on, the, you know, this. <laughs> it's like, you know, how they got there, because right. it wasn't from, like, it wasn't like they were, you know, cliff diving, and they're paralyzed. They got there from eating too much. Right. From being at Costco too much. Right. It was a nutritional cliff. Exactly. And, and, I, and I, I have to tell you, I get judgy, you know, when they're, when they're stuck, I would say, what kind of a life are these people living? You know, and, and so I do get that way. And I do laugh at myself, though. My son ended up laughing at me. You know, he knows how bad it is that right. I'm saying these things. I think I feel like, I, you know, for me, people who work hard to uh, point out why they're 
not to blame for the, their own circumstances. Ever. That's really what it comes down to yeah. for me. Yeah. And it happens in ways that are big and small, material mm-hmm. and metaphysical. And um, But I, it's, it's maddening because part of that defense of putting up a wall to protect yourself from criticism, it's not my fault, is you're putting up a wall that keeps you from getting out of those circumstances. Keeps you from evolving. You're done. You're devolving now. As long as you're staying in a state of blame, finger pointing, anything else besides self-responsible, accountability, doing your own personal inventory. Right. This yeah. is what we're, these are the keys to life. That's the irony is it's the key. Not being right, not defending yourself. I do that a lot. Stopping it. Yeah. Working on stopping it. I don't need to defend myself to you. I know what my intentions are. I know I'm a good person. Right. You know, but, but it's, 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 well, it's lack of acceptance, right? I mean, it's yeah. like eventually you just, it's, it's, you accept it, whether it's, you know, somebody did something to you or you failed to do something and you're blaming somebody. It's, you just got to accept that and then work from that baseline of, okay, now I'm here. Where do I go from here? You know, as opposed to justifying based on the past. But I, you know, it saddens me because it's a self imposed prison, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and it's frustrating because sometimes those people, it's like when, you know, the, the sort of cliche of you try to save a drowning person and then they start dunking you underwater, like Mm -hmm. they will violently defend themselves, kicking and scratching to stay in that They'll claw your neck, you know Yeah, and they're taking, they Um, take you down with them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's Um, up to us to swim away. You know, you can throw you can throw them a life preserver. That's fine. It's up to them if they want to get the life preserver. But yeah. I'm not going to get in it with them. You know, let me ask you a question. So you've had these phases of your career. Obviously, you did Talk Soup, which is a wonderful launching pad. And then, you know, the, um, the, 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 the wipeout. Mm-hmm. Now you're on a cooking show. Yeah. Right? Baking show, yeah. Now, this is what I want to know. The you you are today. How is that different than the you you were when you were doing those uh, those other shows? You're a different person when you're showing up at the set now. And I how are you a different th- I person? I think, first of all, I'm at a point, and I know you will understand this, where at the beginning of my career, it was all about what I wanted to do creatively. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, uh, what I felt was funny or what I was trying to accomplish my own kind of carving out my own brand. Right. Um, the other, uh, the difference now is when I go, I'm like going, all right, how do I, how can I be of service to this production and these people? How can I give them what they need for this show to be successful? And how can I do it in a way that is, positive influence on everybody around me and organic to you yeah Yeah. yeah, exactly how can i find something that works for me that services them and where everybody's gonna be pleased to be around you where you're not gonna be a big brooding negative right dark cloud you're wondering where your oscar is you know that's that's the thing in show business is the intentions change they have for me over the years i mean 
Dude, I'm like, I feel like at this point, I'm like the Crash Davis of the entertainment industry from Bull Durham. Like, I'm just, you know, at least I'm that's just, pretty. I'm that's like, like 80, late eighties. I'm shooting <laughs> for like the basic cable Hall of Fame at this point. You know what I mean? I just want another season in the sun, man. Yeah, it's my yeah. only hustle. Any day that somebody hires me to do something is a good day. It's fun. Yeah, exactly. And have fun doing it, no matter what it is. I mean, if they told me I had to coal mine. You know, for the right money, I do. But yeah. I mean, I'd have to find a way to enjoy yeah. it. Have to find a way to have passion. Have to have a way to have connection with people. Right. That is the big key. That's the thing that was missing for me in stand up. It's such a solo career, and it really is about. It's a weird lifestyle. It really is about self, and it is about you know working out stuff from the dinner yeah. from the great Santini. It's being about, on your own for nineteen hours a day, and then being bathed in the attention of strangers for four hours, then back in the isolation tank. It's it's jarring. <laughs> that sounds like a that sounds like a torture. <laughs> it really, I mean, it's weird. It's like I you know I, I tried to go out on the road a few years ago. I'm like I'm in a fucking Ramada Inn in Timonium, Maryland, playing Magoobie's. Oh my house. god, I've been there. Away from my wife and kids, like I got. What am I doing? That's rough. You know, how much porn can you watch? Like at a certain point, you're like, I gotta go home, man. I'm even off of that now. So now there's nothing. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) not even a USA Today outside my door. Yeah, remember those days? Yeah, I I said this is a good hotel. They got my USA Today. I start my day with my sports page. Yeah, on the toilet. Yeah, we're good. So I kind of got acclimated. I did like that system, but once now it's just like just want to be just connected with people in a very profound way, energetically matching, you know, not defending, not running, not, you know, not needing, needing that that's another one. Victims and needy people. I don't need, you know, the adulation. You get it from the connection. Now it doesn't matter. I get standing ovations all the time. People say, I never even see standing ovations. It's, I don't want to say it's meaningless to me, but there's like there's this energetic flow that just happened, and they're appreciating that. That I appreciate is in the moment with that flow, right. with people saying, "I get you." Right. That, that's where, when you really break it down from a aerial view. That's really what it is. Is we get one another. Yeah, and that's, well, you alleviate the isolation of the human experience exactly for, for an hour. Or yeah, two, you know. I'm, yeah, and you're helping them. Yeah, and, and they're, people, they're aware. Like, if everybody's laughing, they're part of something. If you're watching stand up alone in your room, <laughs> you can be. You know, you're watching a Netflix special. You can be laughing, but the energy of being in a room with 350 people yeah. laughing now you're part of. It's like a super organism. Like you're part of an experience of something that a chemical reaction that's happening on a bigger level, and that feels energized. It's literally contagious. I yeah. mean, absolutely, and and it's it's an amazing, it's an amazing experience that I wish other people could have. You know, we're very unique in the experience. Yeah, when you think about it. You are alone. You're the choreographer. You're the director. You're the makeup artist. You're everything in this movie. Every single element yeah. is is handled. The only thing we're not doing is turning on the mic. And it's a weird type of hypnosis. Like it's almost like you're. It's almost like a social hypnosis where you're taking people. You're 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 lulling them into that journey. Yeah. You know what I yeah. mean? Because yeah. some people come in, they're not willing to go. And oh, they yeah. they get carried along and realize, holy shit, that was... I love when they come up know? afterwards. I normally don't like comedy. Right. You ever right. have that one? Right. I normally don't like comedy. You I like. Right. And I, but I, I, I just thought I'd dump 135 <laughs> bucks tonight and going to see something that I hate. <laughs> well, the other thing is, like, 
really? What's the rest of your life like? You just, you know what I mean? Like, real, that's what you're, you're going to lead with that? I normally don't laugh. Yeah. Well, why don't you? We right. need to laugh more. Yeah. I tend to be a joyless person and a total <laughs> but, energy but suck the, of everyone. this around. hour and a half I yeah. spent with you, Craig. Yeah. If I, so I'm like, okay, go on your life. You know? But that's, that's a perfect way to wrap up. We have to wrap up. But I, I'm t- it's such a pleasure hanging with you. It was, it was kind of fun. It's, you know, this show, it goes everywhere. I mean, it could go from the silliness of talking about a rub and tug, you know, with Eddie Ift to, you know, to going deep with you is really kind of. Wait, a, a rub and tug from No, 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 Eddie I'm Ift sorry, Eddie Ift. Or with Eddie Ift, because that that's a very different. Folks, I'm glad he clarified that. <laughs> we, now, because <laughs> Eddie Ift talked about. I've had a very similar experience to one of those. I'll let you guys figure out which one. I know Eddie well. He played a joke on someone about it was a rub and tug joke, but anyway, it got real silly. But you, you and I, you know, got to go. I really experienced you in a different way today because you know I grew up watching you, you know, on TV hosting yeah. this talk soup thing, you know, going what the fucks with that little white patch in his head? Um, oh, it's it's spread now. <laughs> it's uh, now there's no patch. It's just the whole. It's right. a whole field. Yeah. But uh, but I mean, so from that to now, I have a better understanding of you. We lived a lot of the similar ways that led to us being gifted. We are gifted. Anyway, I see a dog out there. I think it's our next guest. Okay. All right. So, John, real hey, pleasure. Thank you very John, much. John, how do you how do we find you on social media? Uh, you can find me at John underscore Henson at Twitter.com. And uh, that's really all that matters. Oh, you don't do Instagram? Uh, you know, I do. I think I'm ye old skunk boy at Instagram, but I'm never <laughs> I think, on Instagram. I think you are, man. actually. I've, I've been there. You know, you I, need to post some stuff. All right. Hey, I hope you all had a, a, a wonderful time with this intimate, intimate talk uh, with John Henson. Uh, you know, this is, this is how we go with this. It's a go with genuine flow. And yeah. I think that um, I hope and encourage everyone to go with that. You know, have some courage to change and shift and transform. I mean, really, it's it's a, a remarkable way to live. He and I have both been there. We've been in those those times where you just you feel so hopeless. And we hope we brought you a little hope today, connected with you. Make sure you follow this podcast. It's enlightened up. Like us, spread the word, tell other people, follow John Henson. And just remember, everybody, enlighten the fuck up, will you? See you next time. 